If you would, stay standing just for a brief moment for the reading of God's holy word. Turn me to Romans chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 940. On page 940. For context, I'll begin in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Romans 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So for the last five weeks, we have been discussing God's wrath found in two chapters of Romans. Now, we will look at Romans 2, 17 through verse 29 today as we continue the study of God's wrath, but just please keep in mind we have not yet arrived to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. If you look real fast at Romans 3, verse 21, we find the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we arrive there, we will not leave this truth for the remainder of Romans. But here, what, what Paul is doing is Paul is laying the foundation. He is building up brick after brick after brick of his argument of, guess what, human race? You are fully depraved. You are wicked. He is instructing the saints in Rome, but as the saints are gathered together, there were also lost souls present, just like there are this morning. In the words of R.C. Sproul, Romans is Paul's fullest, grandest, most comprehensive statement of the gospel. Its compressed declarations of vast truths are like coiled springs. Once loose, they leap off the mind and the heart to fill one's horizon and shapes one's life. And so this epistle is to shape our life as Christians. So these believers, they were located in the largest city in the world at the time that this letter was written by Paul, around A.D. 56, with innumerable pagan gods were being worshipped all around the city. The city was ruled by Nero. And if you remember your history, Nero would later on burn a major portion of the city, blame the Christians, and persecute them for it. So this epistle is to shape our life Paul, he had never had the great privilege of being with them face-to-face as he wrote this letter. Eventually he would, but he would be in chains. And soon after he arrived, he would be martyred. But just keep in mind, he wanted these people. He longed to be with them, but God's sovereign hand prevented it. And he wrote them to tell them the greatest truth in all the world, and so they would remember that truth. This epistle is to shape our life. How important it is for us to note that as Christians, as parents, as adults, as teenagers, as children, that Paul begins this letter with building up of humanity's wickedness. In the culture that you and I live, this is not what we see. 
Indeed, in most churches, this is not what we hear. But brick after brick, Paul begins with the clear, undeniable truth that we are fully wicked. We are depraved individuals. We are evil. What Paul is doing, he is getting his audience lost before he can get them found. And by the way, that's how the Bible teaches it. Over and over and over again in the Bible, this is what we find. The Bible as a whole speaks more of God's anger, fury, and wrath than he does of God's love and tenderness. This is so important. The good news of Jesus Christ is only good if we understand our great need for salvation. Otherwise, it's not good. If you start talking to people about you need Jesus, but you don't talk about your wickedness, the fact that you are evil, and this is what Paul does. In our society, we hear that if we go up to someone and we say you are evil and you need Jesus, that's not loving. Maybe it's not loving to you, but God says it is, and it's biblical. This is so important. God's grace and love is not rightly understood if we don't fully grasp our wickedness before a holy God. Even our understanding of God's holiness is lacking if we don't understand the righteous wrath of God, the holy indignation of God, and his anger against sin. Sin must be understood if salvation is to be understood. We also must consider the reality that God the Father sent God the Son to this earth to do what? Save sinners. How did God save sinners? Through the killing of His Son. Do not forget that. It is significant for us to understand our depravity. We were all born into this world spiritually dead, spiritually blind, and spiritually deaf to the things of God. Our heart started in this world, in the womb, completely deceitful and completely corrupt. We need to be fully saved because we are fully wicked. And we need to be saved because our sin is killing us. And without Christ, we are spiritually dead. So I want to briefly take you to all that Paul has already said, what he is building brick after brick after brick to get to Salvation is found in Christ alone. So look at Romans 1, verse 18. In this verse, we find God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what do we begin with in Romans 1, 18? Um, you're all guilty. Every single soul in this room is guilty. Romans 1.21, his wrath is against those who do not honor him or give thanks to him. You did this this week. I did this this week. You and I had moments in our life where we did not honor him. We did not give thanks to him. Romans 1 verse 23, his wrath is against those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for false images. You know, the hard part about being a living sacrifice in this world is that so often we crawl off the altar and we live for self. That is what is so difficult. Many people say how difficult it is to die for the Lord, and it's very, very, very difficult to live for. Romans 1.25 His wrath is upon those who exchange the truth about God for a lie and serve the creature rather than him. 126, God's wrath is upon those who are involved in dishonorable passions going against his good law. God is against homosexuality and all shameless acts. Romans 1, verse 28, God's wrath is upon those who do not acknowledge him. 129 through 31, these verses His wrath is upon all manner of unrighteousness. His wrath is on evil, covetousness, bad character, discontentment, deceit, maliciousness, those who gossip, those who slander, haters of God. His wrath is on those who are prideful, those who are arrogant, the boastful, 
contrivers who suppress the truth, those who disobey their parents, the foolish, the faithless, the unloving, and those without mercy. So at this point, either you're lying to yourself or you're honest, saying, without Christ, I am fully guilty. Now look at Romans 2. It begins with, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Therefore, you have no excuse. We are without excuse because of general revelation that we find. We are all without excuse, and we are without excuse because we are all sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. And Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, stands as a warning for us. This flies in the culture of those who have embraced easy believism. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we hear so much about God's love, and that, that is true. You can quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. As Christians, we embrace this. We are thankful for this. We love this verse. But when you, what you find here is, are you presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Without repentance... Without a discussion of God's wrath, without discussion of evil, you have no gospel. It's half-hearted. It says, because of your hard and impotent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God's kindness, God's restraint, His tolerance of you, His patience with you is meant for you to go to Him and to find life. When he's building up all these bricks and he's showing how wicked humanity is and your great need for a Savior, and then you hear the word, God tolerates you. And you hold that to the holiness of God and the love of God. But he he is tolerating you because you're in great need. He is laying up these bricks. His kindness his tolerance, his patience, that is meant for us to go to the Lord in repentance, to love him, to not rebel against him, to repent and believe because God's final judgment is coming. Look at Romans 2, verse 6. He says, He will render to each one according to its works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. What Paul is laying out right here, what Paul is wanting the audience to understand, the people that he has never met, is he wanting them to fully grasp one thing. He's wanting them to see it over and over and over again. This is what you need to understand here. He is saying that all that you are, you are without excuse and you need a Savior. You need a Savior. Because God's judgment will include Jews and Greeks. This is the structure that he's talking about. The substance of the judgment is your works over and over again all throughout the New Testament and Scripture you find when God comes back and God judges because He is, that is going to happen. And I know in our world sometimes that we struggle to think that way. We struggle to think that Jesus is coming back. We struggle to remember right now Jesus is not dead, but He is alive. We struggle to remember that Jesus is no longer on that cross, but He is interceding for His children and nothing can take you out of His hand. We struggle to remember those things. But in everything, get this. He is saying you need Christ. You are not good enough. You will never be good enough. The structure is God's judgment will include everybody. The structure is the substance of the structure, of the judgment, is your works. 
If we lack faith in Christ, we have no good works. Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The reward of the judgment, it's only one of two possibilities. I tried to implant into your minds last week that at the reward, you're not going to have time to sit before a holy God and talk your way into heaven. You're not going to stand before the Lord and say, but God, what about this and this and this? God, this and this and this. No. You're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to lay out his judgment and that is that. The reward of the judgment is one of two possibilities, eternal life or eternal wrath, and you need to know the road that you are presently on. Where are you headed right now? The span of this reward. For Christians, this is what we love. The span is forever. We will spend forever with Christ in heaven. We will spend forever. It will be perfect. No more pain. No more suffering. No more hardships. No more sin. No more persecution. No more worrying about things. We will be with Christ forever. And that is what Paul is doing. Paul's motivation in writing all this, Paul's motivation in saying all this is the fact that he is looking ahead at his Savior and saying, it's all worthless because I know what's coming. It's all worthless because I know what I have in Christ. So the span of this reward is not temporary, it is permanent. So where are you headed? Are you on the narrow way to heaven or the broad way to hell? I love the words of Joel Beek. He said, the purpose of Romans is to ground the believer's faith upon God's righteousness imputed through Christ alone for the glory of God alone and for the unity of the church. So are you truly saved? Have you been born again? Is your faith really in Jesus Christ? Is this belief in your heart or Is it just empty words upon your lips? Is this belief visible in your life, in your works, or is it just in your speech? Hearers of the law are not justified. It is the doers of the law. So Paul continues to unfold our depravity specifically by looking at the law of God and your personal life. So today, we will be examined by God's law And in our culture, we do not like to do this, do we? In our culture, we don't. Because you know what we first do? We look at those around us and say, yeah, but look at that guy. Oh, man. Praise God I'm not like one of them. We must not compare ourselves to others. If you want a comparison, hold up your life to the Lord. Compare your life to the Lord, the great I am. Look at the Lord and look at his law and know that you are wicked. God gave us the law for a reason so that we would shut our mouth and realize he is holy, we are not. We are in great need. Many times we look at others, just like the Pharisee did in Luke 18. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But this person is not justified. The person who is justified is the one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the person who is justified. All right, so now we're at Romans 2, verse 17. Look with me there. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So Paul is specifically speaking here to the Jews in Rome. Now the Jews are God's chosen people. Jesus came for the Jew first and then for the Greek. We have already found this three times in this letter. And in these verses, he confronts the Jews, those who are instructed in the law from birth. So if you're a teenager this morning, most of the teenagers, by the time they were 12, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all memorized. They were instructed in the law. 
and he is confronting them. Those instructed in the law, for God gave it to them. So they had the Torah, that also included the Ten Commandments, which most Christians today can't tell you what they are, but they might say they live by them. But as a reminder, in this letter, Paul has a literary feature here. In Romans, he uses rhetorical questions. Paul asks rhetorical questions for the purpose of drawing in the audience to provide clarification as well as correction. So he clarifies something concerning their theology, and he corrects them concerning their theology. An example of a rhetorical question which I hear in my life is, are you really going to wear that? And I usually get that from my wife or my daughter, which my daughter is not as nice when I put on clothes like that. She usually looks at me and is like, you're not walking out of the house with that on, are you? Another example of a rhetorical question is, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. Someone, something that I hear often from teenagers, are you serious right now? Are you for real? Or my favorite from R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? So in these verses, Paul is drawing them in. He is clarifying. He is correcting. Because in Romans 2, 17 through 20, they called themselves Jews and they relied upon the law. So they relied upon the law of God and they boasted in God. They claimed to know God's will. They approved what is excellent. They instructed others in the law. They were sure that they were a guide to the blind. They were confident that they were a light to those in the darkness. It even says they were an instructor of the foolish and they were teachers of children. They were teachers of those who were immature. So as Jews, they took their pride in having the shape as well as having the knowledge of truth. After all, we are Jews. So are you seeing the picture that Paul is painting to these Jews A good question for us is we see the pride of these Jews. Do we see our own pride? Look at Romans 2, verse 21. Here comes the rhetorical questions. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So the question that he says, do you teach others? You teach others, but do you teach yourself? You know, so often when we hear that, we think of individuals like, it's so much easier for me to point out sins in the lives of others and to ignore my own. In fact, Jesus taught about this. He said, why in the world are you ignoring the log in your eyes so you can see the speck in your brother's? He says, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say one must not commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You hate idols, but do you rob temples? Most likely this is generally referring to the elevating of the law by the Jews, elevating the law of God above God himself. Paul has gotten their attention. He is being clear. He is correcting these Jews specifically their understanding of the law and their own wickedness. Individuals who love religion and rules, but they do not love Jesus Christ, are very dangerous. They're called legalists. The words of Daniel Dornai are crazy good. It says, many love the law for the worst reasons. It gives them rules to keep so that they can declare themselves righteous, and it gives them rules to enforce so they can declare their neighbors wicked and beat them over the head. You know, every year we take a mission trip to Utah. Utah is the capital of the world of Mormons. Their whole theology is based upon the fact, I must do this so I get this. I must do this so I get this. In fact, I don't want to pick on the Mormons. Every other religion in the world, that is what it is. In fact, 
Most likely, unless you live within a span of a few blocks from here, you drove by churches this morning, and that's the basis for their theology. But the truth is, there are many people gathered today in churches, in the Bible Belt, in Christian churches, and they love the law of God, but they don't love Jesus. Paul is saying, you had the law, you taught the law, but were, are you keeping the law? And they weren't. They were eager to teach the law. They were eager to say, don't you do this, but they did it. They were ready to say, I approve of this, but what about their own actions? The question is, did their beliefs overflow into their life, or did their beliefs just apply to the lives of others? It's a great question for us. Another great question for us to consider is, is my life a reflection of my theology? I say I love God. Does my life prove that I love God? Do I love the commands of God? Or do I just love His commands, but I don't love Him? See, Jesus, He, he, didn't, he didn't break apart those two things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's talking about that. It's not legalism to say if you love God, you're going to obey His commands. As a Christian, as someone who has been born again, there are things that you should do and there are things that you should not do. Let me give you a perfect example. There are things that Jesus did in the world, hated Him for it, and there are a myriad of things that Jesus did not do because it was sinful. Look at verse 24. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So figuratively speaking, in all these prior verses, Paul has already stabbed these Jews with a knife. In verse 24, he twists it. He's doing the twisting of the knife, getting to a major point. All these things that you're teaching, all these things that you're talking about, all these things that you say that you love, you're not doing and you haven't kept. These Jews had the law. They were God's special people. They taught the law. They claimed to boast in God, but they themselves were also lawbreakers. God's covenant people were lawbreakers. The Jews who had the law thought of themselves as a light to the Gentiles, but in reality, they were not a light. The Jews, they were the ammo of hypocrisy. And you've heard this before. You have many people in your life who say they hate church because the church is full of hypocrites. Now, if you're a mature Christian, you can respond by saying, Amen. The church is full of hypocrites, but we're sinners saved by grace. Because our salvation is not based upon us being perfect. Our salvation is based upon Christ and His holiness. But these Jews, they were the ammo of hypocrisy. They were not an example to follow. They were fellow lawbreakers, but this is not how they saw themselves. They thought too highly of themselves. How do you think of yourself? Because whether or not you're a Jew or Greek, as you're reading in Romans and you're walking through this line after line, are you thinking, man, I am a good person? Or line after line, are you thinking, I am so thankful that Christ is my Savior. He is so good. He is so good. He came from heaven to earth. I would have never done that. To leave the glories of heaven and to come to this sinful, wretched place that had been turned over by sin. To be born of a virgin, to be brought in this world so humbly, to be spit upon, hit, mocked, nailed to a cross, and then three days later, to rise from the dead. And then, after he draws Christians to himself, what's he do? He says, I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to let you go, even though every day... You're going to turn away from me. 
Every day you're going to do what is right in your own eyes. Every day you're going to fall on your face. Every day, Lord willing, if you are a mature man or woman of God, you're going before the Lord in repentance, asking him to forgive you, even though you already know you're forgiven in Christ because you are dependent upon him. Every day after salvation, we continue to rebel, but his grace continues to flow. How do you think of yourself? Do you think too highly of yourself? Do you think too low of the Lord? We are all lawbreakers. In Matthew 7, if you'll turn with me there, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Paul teaches us this. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in 21. Let's see what we think about. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Paul has already made this statement. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And even then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. We must not think like the Jews. We are all lawbreakers, and we will also all face the judgment of God. The answer for our salvation is not the law. The answer for our salvation is the one who has kept the law, and those who are found in him, those are the ones who can obey. So teach the law of God. Absolutely. Amen. We need the law of God to be taught, especially in evangelism. If, if Paul did not know the law, he would not have known that he had sinned. Teach the law of God, but teach yourself. Preach the law of God, but preach to yourself. Having and knowing the law of God is not the end game. Just because you can memorize something, especially those in school right now, many of you with your schedules and everything, you memorize something, it's known as cramming. Like, I got tonight, I'm going to cram, memorize it, and then after the exam, it's done. If someone, if you were to walk out of the building right now and someone came up to you and said, hey, do you know what the law of God is? There's ten ten commandments the Lord has given you. Could you name them? In order. And describe them and explain what that means for your life. As Christians, we should know the law of God. We are all breakers of God's law. Therefore, we have sinned against the Lord, and we have dishonored the Lord, who is worthy to be honored. Look at verse 25 of of Romans chapter 2. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So many Jews were placing their security of salvation in their outward physical circumcision. So it is true, the Jews' circumcision was an act of obedience, but it was not their salvation. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, I will read really fast. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. They instruct us of this covenant that God made with Abraham concerning Circumcision. 
So if you remember Abram, that was his name beforehand. Now his, his name was Abraham. And he says, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. So Paul goes back to the law, but Paul also goes back to the Old Testament over and over and over again to show something of validity. He is showing the fact that the Old Testament, this was all preparing the way for, until we get to Romans 3.21, Jesus. This is what he's showing. So look at Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and and you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Paul is saying that outward circumcision is of value if you obey the law. But no one has obeyed the law. That is what Paul has been saying over and over and over again. You haven't kept the law. You are not perfect. You have not obeyed the law. Outward circumcision requires perfection. And you, as a part of the human race, you have failed at that. Therefore, as Romans says, circumcision becomes uncircumcision. To say it another way, circumcision is canceled out when the breaking of the law occurs. John Calvin said here, as they neglected what the sign signified and regarded only the outward form, they had no reason to lay claim to anything on account of of the sign. John Murray went on to say, circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant dispensed to Abraham, which was a covenant of promise and of grace. Hence, it had relevance only in the context of grace and not at all in the context of the law and works in opposition to grace. So the outward circumcision was a picture that you are my people, but they neglected the word of God. In other words, Paul is saying, yes, you are a Jew. Yes, you are God's chosen people, but you have failed in the keeping of the law. So guess what? You are not my people. You have not kept the law. They had an appearance, but in the heart, that is what God knows that the breaking of the law is uncircumcision. So true circumcision is not outward, it's inward. It's not the physical act, it is a matter of the heart, a spiritual act by the Spirit of God. This spiritual act is known as when God saves a person. He makes that person born again, taking out the heart of stone and giving it a heart of flesh. Salvation is all of grace. And it's all of grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul's words here in verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not this uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but breaks the law. So if the physically uncircumcised kept the law, they would be regarded as 
circumcised. So outward circumcision, outward appearances are not the answer with God. As we talked about last week, God judges based on the secrets. He, that God knows our secrets. He knows everything that nobody else knows about you. All the things that you've wanted to keep hidden, He knows. That we are all naked and exposed before Him. So outward circumcision, outward appearances, they are not the answer with the Lord. Then you get to verse 28. This is nothing short of amazing. Look what Paul says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Jews, all your advantages, and you're still guilty. Jews, you are God's chosen people, but yet you have rebelled, and you have not kept the law. Jews, you might look clean, but please consider, and you might even consider yourself superior to everybody else, but you're not. You are guilty just like everyone else. Paul is continuing to lay out the stones of wickedness and build up his argument to Rome. He is saying, Jew or Greek, you have not kept the law. Jew or Greek, you have broken the law. You are all lawbreakers. Jew or Greek, salvation is not a matter of works. It is not by the letter. Jew or Greek, salvation is a matter of your heart. And because you have broken God's law, you are guilty before the Lord. Now, I know I said this at the beginning, but I'll say it again. A reminder, we are discussing God's wrath until we get to Romans 3, 21. So you may be feeling like, man, God's word is just pounding on me over and over and over again. This is where as God's children, you say a divine amen, because that's what it's intended to do. Jew or Greek, do not seek praise from other lawbreakers. Seek the reward of righteousness from Yahweh through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see, the saved man or woman is not the one who says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. The saved man or woman is the one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because I know who you are and I know who I am. I know what you've done and it is the best news that I can focus on. Look at verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So if circumcision is a matter of the heart, this is not a new teaching. It is something that Paul makes very clear to the Jews. You may want to write these down. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 35 through 6, which they had memorized. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in Jerusalem. Break up your foul ground, sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourself to Yahweh. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds." So the answer to God's righteous judgment is not the keeping of the law, for we have not kept it. We have all done evil, therefore we are not the judge. How can one rely upon the law when we are all lawbreakers? This is why we have God's wrath. The answer to God's righteous judgment is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom the Father sent. Christ kept the law, and he did it perfectly. And he paid for all who will put their faith in him. If you want to truly understand what God expects of you, you you want to truly grasp the fact that you are guilty of breaking his law, study the law. You have stolen. I remember, some of you younger people, you won't understand this, but I remember when I was younger, they they had just price tags, the barcode hadn't been invented yet. I wouldn't have money, so I would, I would peel off the sticker and switch stickers so I could buy something at a cheaper value. 
I also remember one time when my parents said no to something that I wanted, and I ripped it out of the package in the store, and I stuffed it in my sock, because we had tall tube socks back then growing up. We've all stolen something. We've all committed adultery in our hearts. We've all lusted after other things. You and I have all failed to worship the Lord fully. We haven't loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Therefore, we are guilty. Your outward appearance is no help before a holy and righteous God who knows all things, including your secrets. Your heart is fully exposed to Him. He knows it all. In Romans 2, verse 16, it says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus because that's who God appointed. So in the Christian life, in the Christian heart, there is no room for pride. We have absolutely nothing to be boastful about outside of Jesus Christ. Jew or Greek, your bloodline, your nationality before the Lord, it is nothing to boast in. Your works, they are nothing to boast about. Scripture even says they are filthy rags. And yet, over and over and over again in Scripture, you have people talking. It's like where the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. And how do they respond? Lord, I did this in your name. Lord, I did this in your name. I did this, I did this, I did this. Just pause for a moment. Imagine standing before a holy God telling him all that you did. Do you see how wicked that is? Lord, I'm good enough. Lord, look at all I did for you. The Christian is before the Lord and the Christian is on his knees saying, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me out of the pit of hell and drawing me to yourself. Thank you for lowering the bucket of election and pulling me up. Thank you for all that you have done. I have nothing to bring. I simply come by the blood of your Son. If you're standing before the Lord and you want to name off everything you have done, you don't know Him. You don't know Him. Circumcision. And the flesh does not save you. Your works do not save you. Your bloodline does not save you. Your parents cannot save you. Your church cannot save you. Your attendance cannot save you. You are saved by Christ and Christ alone. You need circumcision of the heart, and that is by the Spirit of God. Verse 29 is so telling from Romans 2. He says, His praise is not from man, but from God. Whose praise are you seeking? Is it your own praise? Is it the praise of others? Or is it the praise of God? You see, God knows your heart. He knows your secrets. And Romans 1 and Romans 2 instructs you of God's wrath and your depravity. In fact, because you have sat here today and you have listened to God's Word read and preached, you are doubly accountable because you've heard it. Jew or Greek, you have God's law. Do you have Christ? The law cannot save. You are a lawbreaker. Jew or Greek, baptized or unbaptized. Church member or not even close to a church member. I am not talking about your bloodline. I'm not talking about your outward appearance. I'm not talking about church membership. I am speaking to the state of your soul. Without Christ, you are spiritually dead. You are a lawbreaker and God demands perfection. And you need the perfect payment for your sins. And Jesus Christ is the only perfect payment. You're in Him or you're not in Him. You're saved or you're not saved. You have His wrath or you have salvation in Christ. Have you called on Christ for salvation? Have you put your faith in Him? Because God's judgment is coming. And if you're spiritually dead right now, what you can say is to yourself is, you know what, I know, I know things aren't going well in my life, but I'm going to clean it all up. No, you won't. You cannot clean yourself up. You have to go to Jesus to get cleaned up. Do not be deceived concerning your salvation. Your works will not save your soul. 
You have not kept the law. law. God's full wrath is coming, and time is not on your side. I mentioned last week how James says our life is but a vapor. It is but a mist. We're here one second, and we're gone the next. I was in conversations with people this morning thinking about that. It was like seven and a half years ago, I was at First Baptist Church Keller. Seeing old relationships and how time has flown and my kids have grown up and I've lost hair and things have looked so much more different. And when you're young, you think time is on your side. Don't delay. Come to Christ. He is your only hope. Christ is the only salvation for your soul. Now is the time. Our words and our works as Christians, are to be the ways of Jesus Christ. If you are already saved, we are to follow the commands of our Lord, even in times of difficulty. This is what I love. I love thinking about Paul as the author. Through the Holy Spirit, I love thinking about the fact that Paul said, Look at me. Follow the example that you have in me. I love the fact that I know how Paul finished his race, that he kept looking to Jesus even when he was killed. So this man that wrote these words, yes, he failed because he wasn't Jesus. He, was, he had sin in his life. He struggled. He even declared himself as the worst, the chief of sinners. But he is laying out before these people whom he has never met, which is another mind-blowing thing. He has never met them. But he loves them so much, he is pouring out this truth. And yet you and I have so many people that we have met, so many close relationships, and we have no idea where they are spiritually. We have no idea where they're going. In fact, we've never even told them where we're going. We've never talked about it. But yet, even in times of difficulty, you see a man who is living for the Lord. Christian, just as Brian said earlier, as we are singing, but he's our sure and steady anchor, and we are thinking about all the things that are going on in our life in this world. What better time to talk about Christ? What better time to share how good Christ is because this is not all that there is. Even in times of difficulty, do not forget the cost of following Jesus. Father, I thank you for your holy word, how good it is. Father, for people who like to feel good all the time and to be entertained and we seek out multiple ways to be entertained and to please ourselves, to hear about your wrath, line after line after line after line can be overwhelming. But praise God that your word does the work and humbles us and brings us to you and we repent. Father, in this room, you know the heart of every soul. You know if they're saved, if they're not saved. You know if they're playing a game, they're putting on masks before others. We know if they're actually circumcised or not in the heart. Lord, for your children, give them a great assurance of salvation in you today. May they reflect upon your goodness, your greatness. How your love covers the multitude of sins that we have committed in the past, present, and even the future. Lord, for the lost, draw them to you. Convict them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. May they become weary of trying to earn their salvation when in fact... They just need to come to your son, Jesus. Lord, as your children, give us the boldness to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ and to preach the law so they understand they are a sinner in need of a Savior. 
We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.